You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alexander Weinstein is the author of the short story collections Children of the New World and Universal Love. The new movie, After Yang, by the director Kogonada, is based on his short story Saying Goodbye to Yang in the collection Children of the New World. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Great to be back. Uh, Pleasure to speak with you always. This is such a wonderful short story and a great example of a transforming a short story into a full movie. And I think that your stories are so well composed to become movies. Uh, talk about your sensibility for creating a story arc that is really full. And when we read this, they're almost like reading a novel, I think. You get many of the same pleasures of reading one of your short stories that you would sitting down and reading a whole novel. So talk about your sense of the story arc, what to put in, and what you, when you put in stuff, I think you put in enough to let the, to allow, enable, and encourage the reader to become a part of the story, a participant in the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's part of what I look at in the story arc, you know, for the short story is, you know, obviously what is essential is a crucial question between a short story and a novel. There's only so many doors you can open within a short story. Otherwise, it starts to get too long. And so part of that goes around, okay, so what is the central conflict? You know, back to kind of traditional craft of story writing. What's the central conflict? And in this story, the central conflict is the robotic child breaks down and will he be fixed or won't he? But in order to build that world and make it rich, like you're talking about, we need to know about kind of a number of things, both in external setting, who are the neighbors, what kind of uh, environment, what world are we in? So all of that is external setting. And then the internal setting of how is this character going through something emotional? So it's not just the fixing of the robot that this story is going to reveal, for example, it's going to show that somehow this father has become disconnected with himself and with his family through uh, the technology that he's gotten, in this case, the robot. And as I explore that, what I start to do is give my character's heart, my own heart, uh, about the hopes and fears that we have living in this world. And I think it's both that kind of external and internal setting that then allows the reader to have this larger vision, this sort of novel feeling uh, within a short period of time. You know, one of the things that I really like about all of your work and and the director in an interview, I heard him say essentially the same thing, which is that your stories cover, take science fiction into the everyday world of everyday people. This was a, a movie and a short story where there were no killings, no chase scenes, no hostage scenes, no <laughs> yeah. violence, and not even any really yelling. And I thought that, that it's so unusual to see a science fiction movie that tosses away 99% of what you associated with science fiction. 
but also it gives you so much more. So talk about making that choice because this is a choice that you make regularly. I think in all of your stories, they're pretty much looking at the everyday lives of people. Yeah. Well, you know, there's two big pieces in that. Um, and so the the piece about the violence for me is so important. Um, you know, I was on the plane and I was watching, you know, an elderly woman ahead of me watching, um, I guess, with the original Dark Knight or, you know, with the Joker and people, you know, getting grenades put in their mouths and butchery. And she's sitting there enjoying that film. And then a little further down, somebody else is watching some kind of gangster movie where, again, somebody's mouth is being totally destroyed and there's blood all over the screen. And I'm looking down this aisle and I'm saying, my God, this is the type of entertainment in the 21st century that we consider normal. We consider it normal to watch butchery, bloodshed, and and pain left and right. And it made me think, thank God for this film, right? Like, thank goodness we need more films like this where what's being shown is the true struggles of what we deal with, which is hopefully, knock wood, not the mob and not, you know, uh, grenades in our mouths per se, uh, but instead the parts of worrying about our children, of um, how to become better partners to our, our our lovers and wives and husbands and whoever that may be that we are in connection with, how to be better at work, you know, and be more honest with one another and how to overcome the shadows that we have within ourselves that sometimes are passed down from multiple generations. All of this is the fodder of the real life that we live. And to some degree, okay, film and television movies are a form of escape, of course, right? But I think they can be something much, much deeper, that they can begin to tell the stories of our lives in a way that helps us make sense of what we're doing and ideally start to live more beautiful and more compassionate lives to one another. The core of both the short story and the movie, I think, or at least a big part of it, are our troubles in identifying what is human outside of ourselves we can look at other humans and think that's just some yahoo who paints his face for the super bowl right (laughs) and we can look upon our dear dearest possessions and think oh my god there's so much love invested in this thing or we can invest our love in something that is not human and then and write it off, it's just a machine, it's just a machine. But then at some point you'll realize that the love we perceive outside of ourselves always begins in the human, sheer humanity. It begins and ends within us. And we have the power to invest both our machines and our others with humanity. That's this, one of the struggles I think we really face now that everywhere yes. in this world and the yes. story brings that that tension i think really really well it ex- uses the science fiction tropes of robots and artificial intelligence to compare and contrast how we feel about things and people and how we can feel the same way about things and people yeah and i think the movie does that uh, after yang does that really beautifully i mean because the uh, robot Yang in the film, it's even more human than I think I wrote him, you know, in the story. I think uh, Koganada has taken him one step further to be even more lifelike. And, you know, I found myself 
openly weeping during this movie. It's a beautiful movie in many mm -hmm. parts. Just uh, and, and but weeping for the robot again. And and you know it's the same thing when I wrote my story was like I kept getting duped by the robot. Uh, as I was writing the story, I really feel for this boy. I, I still don't know, does Yang have a soul or not? Is this robotic programmed AI creature uh, actually have its own volition? And if so, am I just being fooled as the consumer, as the even as the author of the product, right? Um, so I love that, and I hate it too, because I feel like this is where our emotions are constantly manipulated, or at least open to manipulation. Mm -hmm. uh, which is to say, on one level, the fact that we can love everything from uh, cats and dogs to inanimate objects to our electronics is a beautiful testament to how well that we can love things, period. On the other hand, when we open our hearts towards that, we become all the more vulnerable, I think, to marketing and corporate interests that would like to slip in and manipulate just a little bit there, just for a moment. And that, for me, is always the insidious danger underneath these uh, technological advances. And that's one thing I think that the movie does really well, is it discovers this idea. I mean, it's there in your, your story, but it, it discovers the idea of spyware, something that knows us very intimately we can love that thing and profit from the way it behaves towards us just because there's a feedback loop and we become better people around it on the other hand we're just flooding it with information that can be easily misused by people who don't even see other people as human beings but as things to be manipulated yes and this is, I mean, of course, this is the whole question of our own data dignity, right? And um, the way that the moment we use our phones or really anything, any of our smart devices or even use our credit card to make a purchase, all of this info is starting to be tracked and uh, collated and used in order to, it, I imagine the marketers would say, to better sell us products that match our preferences and who we are. Um, but that starts to get really slippery uh, and really problematic um, in many ways. I mean, I think, you know, let's just take this down a sci-fi route a little bit further um, because I, I think we want our technology to know us at this point. Mm -hmm. That that statement would have been totally dystopian in the past, but now we're at a place where we say, well, of course, we want, you know, Spotify to pick up our uh, music choices and deliver us the recommendations that it does, which are great. I never knew that band, et cetera, et cetera. As that moves forward, and as we become more reliant on that technology, I think we're going to start to become increasingly dissatisfied with human failings. Uh, and so that, you know, I mean, That's your partner really might not. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, your partner might not be able to uh, enjoy the same music as you, but certainly Spotify can or a host of AIs that, you know, have exactly the same preferences as you. Um, and I think we're seeing this in dating apps already that, you know, really try to uh, cultivate, oh, this is the exact person. And if not, you can swipe them to the trash and find the next one. Um, that's starting to really freak me out of how we're heading down that road. You know, just the idea of sweeping people to the trash is, you know, it is really terrifying and dystopian. But one of the things I like about 
this story and this, particularly the way that Koganada brought the story to life is that when we see him in the car and some of the exterior shots, though they're brief, they, I mean, they convey a world that's like ours where so often the future is per portrayed as entirely replacing the past. It's like the yes. earth is wiped clean down to nothing, and then we build all these <clears throat> Fritz Lang-style metropolis science fiction buildings on top of it, and that's just not the way it happens. That's we, right. I mean, to walk around my neighborhood or any neighborhood I might go to these days, it's not that different from the way it was 50 years ago. It's shocking. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, there are houses, there are trees, there are telephone poles. I mean, inside we have, you know, the whole computers and the internet, but that's not obvious. That that past, that future is like um, roots growing up from underneath the past. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, that's part of what I love to explore in my fiction is the wonkiness between our kind of analog culture that's still like, you know, uh, has all of its regular problems, and then this hyper-technological streamlined world that we are inhabiting, um, and increasingly inhabiting. You know, some of my stories look at or predict where we're heading with this metaverse, where, you know, externally we're living in these box houses with, like, very little furniture and uh, living very struggling working-class lives. But in the metaverse, we've got oceans to explore, and, you know, we don't, never have to worry because it's such a beautiful landscape, even though our landscape's deteriorating external. Now, After Yang does something really interesting in that Koganada created a greener world. Mm -hmm. um, and I really love his subtle touch that, you know, it's not fully explained how we got there, but you can see that there's a lot of green happening. So there's a kind of solar punk, uh, you know, vision, right? That we're uh, going into a better world in the future. I, I, that's one of the things I did really like about it is that it was a future world that had room for regular people. Yes. <laughs> you know, you, you didn't have to be like struggling in some tiny box in a city. Like even some of the more positive science fiction visions like Star Trek, yeah. At least the the more recent movies, when you see the world, it looks fairly dystopian. It's one giant That's metal right. box instead yeah. of like the the house that, that your characters live in in uh, Koganaz's movie is beautiful. It's you know it, it seems almost like a house on a beach in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the you know I I like that piece too because I think we do want beauty in our lives. We do want peace. We want these things. So it's interesting how um, the question is, how did the structures that we're creating either nurture or stand in the way of achieving those goals, right? And so if, for example, all of our subscriptions to our new digital uploads ends up draining our savings so that we cannot live in beautiful physical locations, so to speak, or have you know good food or things like that, that becomes a problem. Or you know, if our technological advances end up exploiting a third world, which they do constantly through pit mining and through um, all the kind of forced labor and et cetera that makes our technology possible, that then is part of what I want to kind of hint at or uncover, um, while obviously doing that subtle, subtly, lest my stories become a 
kind of soapbox or moral platform, right? And, and I think Coconata really picks up on that. He he poses these critiques, but they're they're just brushed over to the extent that we're not even sure is technology good? Is it bad? Should we should we love Yang? Should we not? Uh, and that kind of confusion, I I think, really parallels the way that we're feeling right now in our 21st century lives. One of the things I thought he did really well, and you did really well, is uh, to engage the technology. Like, oh my God, he's not rebooting. How am I going to fix it? Oh no! And I love the way Coconut set this up that. He bought it like you know, one hundred percent refurbished. <laughs> yes, there's a good, a good deal of a kind of humor in in both your story and in the movie. Although it's not played at the laugh out loud level, it's still pretty funny that you know he bought it, and then he goes to the store, and and, and now it's like, you know, it's an aquarium store. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they can't even remember where it was. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, isn't that like our lives, right? I mean, where we try, to, especially when we are trying to get something on the cheap, you know, or can we get like, you know, a pass to whatever, some movie streaming service, and then the glitches that happen. Of course, I explore that a lot in the in Children of the New World, where, you know, parents are trying to live lives and have, uh, you know, kind of go to, uh, in one story, Children of the New World, they go to a dark city in order to have kind of erotic delights online and bring home viruses that infect their online home. <laughs> and so I'm constantly playing with what is really just our uh, our struggles that we have in normal day and just taking it you know, two or three steps further. Where will we be in 10 years? Where will we be in 20 years? And I think too, that makes up for a really effective dissection of the present because you can take all the anxieties that we have right now that were, that are present in our life and affecting us in a, not necessarily a good way and externalize them. You bring them out and turn them into to plot points. I mean, uh, right. uh, Yang himself is a perfect example of this. You know, the what are we going to do now? You know, both parents have to work. We're going to have to leave our kids or oh, gonna have to drop them off over here, and then somebody's got to pick them up over there. And, yep. And, and I think he, you nailed that one hundred percent. But <laughs> yeah. But, but it's also it's nice because the way it unfolds in the story is low key and natural, and I think that's a really hard uh, effect to achieve. Yeah. Well, I mean, and thanks. That's something I'm aiming for all the time, right? I, I tend to shy away in my own work from any kind of info dump or heavy setup or anything that's going to feel like I need to do a great deal of explaining. Um, because I think the way that technology actually works in our lives is that we we stumble through new, uh, new technologies, we get used to them, and then we make embarrassing mistakes. And this is, you know, those wonderful, uh, when Zoom was first starting and we all had to go live through these Zoom meetings with children walking in and standing up and somebody's not wearing pants and all of this kind of, like this is the humor and absurdity of our lives, uh, as well as, you know, the deep worries that technology occurs. For any parents that had to transition during the pandemic, which is pretty much everyone, to schooling at home and how are the meetings going to work? And did you have Wi-Fi enough? And somebody got kicked out of the Zoom room. And how did you block? These are things we learn to navigate on the fly. 
and didn't consider sci-fi, but they really are. You know, it's true is that uh, we, these are, uh, one of the things that I think too is that we have a, a tendency to think that, you know, the better days are coming. These are the good old days. And I think that yeah. the, the best science fiction stories like yours create for us a nostalgia for the present, but mm. with a kind of understanding that you have by having lived in the future mm. in, within right. this story. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Um, I mean, and that nostalgia is such a key uh, to my work. And it's, it's, I think you've articulated to me something that I, you know, am unaware of in the craft that I do. I just know that I, I like that feeling of nostalgia, that sense of, ah, remember how it was? Wasn't that good? You know, like, how do we keep part of that nostalgia for me is how do we keep that human connection? Mm -hmm. Right? Because um, I don't think I hope that our nostalgia won't be Ah, uh, remember those playlists <laughs> or like you remember the downloading speed of Netflix back in the like, like, I hope that's not what we're left with. I hope our nostalgia is always based on the moments that we created together. Um, and maybe the anxiety and the fear that underlies some of my stories is that we I sense that we're losing, you know, especially raising children who have grown up with iPhones and are on there watching YouTube nonstop, YouTube clip after YouTube. And we say, dinner's ready. And yeah, I'll be there one sec. And I just got to finish my game of Fortnite, which lasts like an hour, you know, and dinner's cold. And there went, you know, there went that family meal. And so I, I'm seeing a loss of that. I have nostalgia in the present for what, <laughs> for the present moment almost of the idealized present moment. You know, uh, I I really like um, in in this story too, the sensibility of how we perceive others in both the short story mm -hmm. and the movie, because there's a, a way that um, technology enables us to just like by virtue of seeing people on the screen, they become more a part of the technology than they are human. And mm -hmm. our ability to relate to them as humans, it, it takes a lot of effort to be able to reach through and grab the aspect. Yes, that's a fellow human being who might be sad, who might be sick, who might be yeah. tired. And, and so talk about creating this feeling of human connection because of and in spite of the machinery that's required to you put humans in communication yeah you know the and that to me relates so much to compassion and empathy um which is really important in my writing so when i first drafted saying goodbye to yang i i was this was one of my first stories that i uh started writing speculative fiction and sci-fi with up until then i'd kind of written realism or a kind of maybe kafka-esque realism at best and uh, and, and I was also influenced slightly by like David Foster Wallace and a kind of scathing approach towards character. And so I had started this, you know, dad that I was going to make fun of with the robot. And this little voice in me said, you're not doing that crap again. Like, just stop. Nope. You don't get to play that card anymore. In fact, you have to put your own heart into that. And so write about what you're struggling with. This dad has to be you that's struggling with trying to 
make a living and be a good dad and, and have your worries. And that was brand new to me to actually risk my own heart through my characters. And I had no clue what to do anymore. The plot was unclear. All I knew was that I had a robot that was broken on my hands and I needed to get it fixed. And so I really followed just sort of the plot itself in there. And in there, I started finding my own voice where like, yes, I have judgments about people who paint their faces for Super Bowl games or, you know, like the all American dude, like I have problems with that. And even when the character is making fun of that neighbor, it turns out that the neighbor, that the character is wrong. You know, I exactly. constantly want to under, undercut myself. Like, I don't know. And it turns out that the neighbor's a really nice guy. Yeah, maybe he's got some feelings. But you know what? So does the narrator. And the, and the narrator's judgments is what's the problem here. Um, I think that is hard enough in real life, you know, to get to your question. Uh, overcoming our own biases and our own blind spots is hard in real life. It gets, uh, you know, exponentially harder online where it's so easy to go into a comment war or just to not see people as as people with hearts and uh, lives that are deserving of care and compassion that's that's an increasing problem in our society right now uh, i think one of the things that was really struck me too was the way that this um, story provided a springboard for Coconata's visual expertise. And yeah. nowhere is this more apparent than when uh, the, the characters surfing the memories uh, uh, that Yang has recorded. That was, I think, so spectacularly beautiful. Yes. And it, it combined, I think, an effective, very effective and beautiful special effect, but gave that uh, special effect an emotional reason to exist which is not just a giant spaceship going over going oh, oh, oh big big uh, spaceship there <laughs> yeah but it, it's just it's your memories of yeah. things that times that mattered yes i and then i mean that for me too is the moment when when that happens i mean i just started weeping it's so beautiful and so tender and nostalgia is just shot through it, all of these memories, you know? And I think part of what Cognata captures so well is this sense of, oh yeah, these memories are sacred, right? Oh yeah, this memory that is just light flittering across the living room, that is, or is our children who built something for us to see, you know, their little, their little hut in, the, in their room that we get a glimpse of. Those are such sacred, important moments that a lot of times we can look over and then they're gone. And then we're they're grown, the children are grown, we move on, and that moment is is fleeting and gone. And that's what Yang is capturing. So in some ways, Yang understands better what it means to be human than any of the humans in the film or in the story. That's right. And I think you were talking earlier about the import of compassion in your work. It's really mm -hmm. apparent. I think that's one of the reasons that your science fiction creates a connection and reads more like in some ways uh, like you know real realistic fiction mm -hmm. because the the emotions are real first and that's, that's right. what matters and that comes through as well in in the, the movie yeah and that's crucial to me i mean that's what i learned early on was that uh, i need to have compassion for the hearts of my characters and they need to share in uh, the things that are important 
to me and to the people that I love and care about. That's the foreground of all my stories. And then the uh, sci-fi elements are always backgrounded. Uh, you know, they're there and they influence the plot and they're, in, they're vital to the plot, but they aren't the thing. It's not the idea, you know, of this sci-fi future that's going to make the story for me. What's going to make the story is that I've represented humanity in some way or our lives on the page um, more beautifully, I suppose, or, you know, more the troubles that we have more accurately. Now, uh, Kogonada did wrote the screenplay. Did he share that with you as he was writing it and get feedback from you? Yeah, so the way that worked was uh, originally the movie was they were scouting to see if they were going to shoot the movie in Detroit. Uh, and so he came to Detroit. I'm in Ann Arbor. And so I invited him to come to dinner. And he, you know, I said, would you like to go out for dinner? And he said, no, I'd like to, you know, if you're okay, because I offered to cook for him as well. He said, I'd be happy to come to your house. I'd like to see, you know, where you live and kind of see the atmosphere of where you are, which I found really interesting. And so mm -hmm. he came and we had a, uh, dinner. I lived by a lake. And so, um, and I'd just come back from China and I had some tea. And so I brewed tea and tea plays a big part in this film. Oh, and absolutely. sure enough with like the, you know, with the tea leaves that were floating, it was spring tea. And so I made us tea and we went down and sat by the lake. And at that point, um, we really hadn't talked much about the film yet through, you know, we mostly were talking about technology and other things. And then at the lake, he started sharing some of the ideas of expansion for the film and said, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, I gave him feedback and really that was it. And then I, I trusted him completely. I said, okay, you know, uh, wonderful. I can't wait to see what you do. And then I didn't see the uh, script until filming started, really. Then I got the script and I could read it. And um, this was pre-COVID. So I got to visit the set and uh, see some of the uh, filming happening and meet the actors then. One of the things that you mentioned, the tea, that also was really beautifully done. And, and the the way the leaves floating and then, you know, echoing the, the matrix, the memories, I mean, all of that stuff was was really nice, and I think that upon rereading your story, I found those same kind of layers put into the story in words, but also too, um, there's one thing that I think that uh, fiction does that is not done in film, which is that fiction really requires the reader to be in the story. And one of the things, the power of your kind of science fiction is that we're emotionally invested in the characters as opposed to emotionally invested in trying to figure out what this technology is going to do. We're going to see, be the characters' feelings about what, they can, what, what, what the technology is going to do. That's right. Yeah, and you know... Part of what that tea does in the film and, and also the montage of images is that it provides a lot of quiet. You know, there's quiet spaces. The movie is, is a beautifully quiet film uh, that looks at grief. And I found that that quiet happens in my story whenever I would pause and look at nature, for example. You know, when they're raking leaves in the backyard and the father then suddenly feels like Yang is his son. Our mistakes gets a little confused about, you know, Yang. Um, it's that kind of immersion in nature where that happens. It's the quiet moments where I think the emotion uh, can then sink in uh, to the characters and to us as readers. It really is kind of amazing how quiet that the movie is. And, mm -hmm. You know, because 
anything else, it's like they're always like shouting or yelling or something. Yeah. There's none of that in, in this movie. And yet I think the intensity of the emotions is there. When we see, you know, his tea business and, and there's nothing there and there's nobody coming in and he, you know, he's kind of like skating over with his wife tying him telling them her how much he's making, which is clearly not much. I like yeah, that right. kind of a low, the financial tensions that are present in the work, both in the written and in the film work. I think he does a good job of bringing those out. Yes, very much so. Um, and, and, you know, that relationship with the wife, for example, which I, is more pronounced in the movie, mm-hmm. um, and really letting her showing her emotions as well in these moments where they both grasp we might be in trouble you know like we might be either in financial trouble in parenting trouble in uh trouble with our love and how much we've connected and those kind of glimpses that we get which i think is very much like how we experience it in life um you know one of the things i work against is in uh in fiction is avoiding this kind of great epiphany you know, because I, I think that, Yay. you know, that often that was a big staple of Victorian literature, you know, and uh, even modernism kind of moved, still moved toward it. But really, we tend to have, I think, smaller epiphanies that sometimes build to a major change, but oftentimes don't. They're like, leading, you know, fleeting moments, glimpses of a larger truth about ourselves. And hopefully we capture it and then are able to grow. That is so true. Yeah, the the age of the kitchen window epiphany is gone. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think you know because because part of that is uh, celebrating. I think our lives again, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. we all have to go around having these major epiphanies at all moments, uh, to some degree, that you know maybe there's a connection here to advertising, where everybody is leaping for joy because their whites are whiter, or they finally got the club medication. You know, and just in the peak of happiness, I, I think that doesn't reflect how we live. Now, um, one of the in in your short story, one of the things I think that works really well is the way that you um, go back and forth between you know the experience of trying to deal with you know the mechanics of, of Yang. And, mm-hmm. and then the emotions of Yang. And I, with in the movie, I think they do a, a wonderful job of that. And I love the scenes where we go to the store where he, that's no longer there, that's now an yes. aquarium, but also where they take, where he takes them to the, the shady computer dealer. <laughs> and I, I was just driving around Santa Cruz the other day, and I saw in the middle of like, kind of one of the more barren strip mall, old kind of worn out areas of town, I saw a TV repair shop. And I thought, uh, my God, who repairs TVs? Yeah, you know, I just saw the same thing, TV VCR uh, repair store. Uh, I was down in New Orleans and I saw it and I thought, wow. I mean, I really love those places. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's something, here's the nostalgia again. You know, I love movie rental places that are still out there renting DVDs and and I don't know why because it's you know I mean it was such a more clunky way than streaming and yet 
I guess it was the the slowness of it. I guess I missed the slowness slightly. You know, I missed the experience, you know, the old blockbuster video where you went in and had to stand stand in line, you know, and who wants to stand in line? And yet we're losing all of that. And maybe and part of it is that. intention too. That yeah. streaming, all you have to do is go press a button and say, okay, go. If you wanted to rent a movie before you had to get in your car and drag your butt over to that place and that place yes. and deal with other all the other people who were either trying to rent stuff. I mean, it was a much more communal experience. I think it was though. I'm sure that you know listeners who are going to listen to this would be like, "What the hell are you talking?" About? Like, that's exactly why we don't want that. You know, like yeah, getting in your car, renting a movie that sucked. You know, instead you can like click off and go to something else now. Although, I mean, the flip side of that is that I think that we're more and more dissatisfied. No, this won't do. This doesn't quite fit my preference. This isn't quite right. And so we flip through like 20 movies before settling on one, which back to dating, online dating, seems like we flip through many, many people and can never really be satisfied. There's something about the satisfaction um, that I see happening with the way that we use technology now. Well, too, uh, one of the things that, that I'm realizing about myself is that as a human, I'm somewhat done with technological improvements. The idea of online dating to me is, right. is I you know, I'd rather be alone. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's, it's a good, but you know, here's here's the thing that I think you know, and this may have to do with uh, generational issues here, because I hear an increasing younger generation that is very open to the idea of uh, Neuralink, for example. You know, Elon Musk's idea that we will start to wire our brains and improve and become, you know, kind of superhuman, have superhuman abilities through installing technology in our in our brains. Um, that to me is completely frightening, but I think more and more people want that kind of technology. Well, as someone, I, I possess a 20 year old uh, automobile <laughs> and, and not just because I could buy a fleet of 70 versions of it and leave them scattered around town for the price of one Tesla, but also, <laughs> but also because uh, Teslas are subject to, to software problems and, and it's one thing to have software problems external. To have them internalized is, I think, extremely terrifying. And again, something that's touched on slightly in Yang. I mean, yes. it's implied, given that Yang won't reboot, I mean, someday there will come a time when I won't reboot either. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, neither the movie or the story uh, really explores this, but something that I find really interesting as we're talking is what if it was an emotional thing that glitched Yang, right? <laughs> that could always be possible. So that, that as we start to mess with our technology, it can not just be hardware, it can be the software of our emotions that can begin to uh, mess up the the synapses, so to speak, or the, you know, the plug-in parts, our HDMI. Well, also too, I think that there's really a tendency of people to, uh, ascribe and form an, an emotional attachment to technology that, I mean, where it's completely impossible. I look at an old pot that I've used to cook for the past 30 years, a million stews and whatever else. And I think, boy, that pot just has 30 years of love somehow, you know, <laughs> contained yeah. in the magdalite. <laughs> that's impossible. Yeah. That's insane. But that's yeah, the right. way human beings think. 
Well, and that's in fact where the story came from for me was that my laptop broke down, uh, which I had been carrying with me from three different states. And I was in grad school at that point, And it had all of the work that I'd done so far on it. And, you know, all my failed stories. It, it had like a lot of importance to me and it crashed and took all the work with it. And I couldn't bring it back. The laptop was dead. And so I found myself oh. crying over my laptop. And then I saw myself as kind of from above and said, what a strange moment you're having <laughs> crying about your laptop. And that became Yang then, you know, and that was immediately transformed. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, and it's interesting too, the uh, part that are the, the most realistic and mundane parts of the lives of the, the writer who reads lives such as yourself are reimagined and repurposed into to science fiction. And I think, so why don't you talk a little bit about one of the things you do well is to articulate with technology. You take it out far enough to make it separate, but not so far out that all we care about is how far out it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that for me is the... Uh part of how I get there, right, is that I want to look at where are we right now and what if I moved it just one step further? Um, or I'll find something that I'm uh, stumbling with in my own life, struggling with, and that I wish I had technology for, right? So uh, in Children of the New World, there's a story called Openness, where uh, it has a technology where we can psychically communicate with each other. And that came out of being on a public bus many years ago and wishing that I knew people's like likes and preferences without having to talk to them so that it would make conversation more easily. <laughs> and so then I was thinking, well, what if we had like an aura, you know, and we could just kind of put photos and things and so we could tap into each other's auras, much like we might pr view a profile uh, in order to be able to strike up conversation. So now, I, now that's before I saw dating apps. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's And that's where the story went, right? So the story then, I didn't know what to do with that technology until I went through a deep emotional relationship and a breakup where suddenly I saw the way that we retract all the info from each other when we're breaking up, right? Like first we tell all our stories about where we grew up and our childhood, and then we close down when we break up and we really seal somebody off. And I said, aha, that's the emotional home for the technological advance and then i could write the story until then it was just this futuristic you know technology that i couldn't do anything with so for me it's always can we tie the emotional that we're feeling or that i'm feeling into whatever technological advancement that i'm going to write about now uh i believe that one or two more stories have been optioned which ones are they and where are they yeah, so, yeah, it's actually three different stories. So um, the title story, Children of the New World, uh, that one, Lulu Wang, um, amazing director uh, and writer of The Farewell, uh, was the last major film. Uh, that's in development with her. And then uh, The Cartographers, which is the second story in the collection, uh, is now in process of getting scripts written for it. And Rocket Knight, uh, which is a really short story, like short, short, it's about five pages. Mm -hmm. um, but that one's being turned into a children's uh, movie and is in uh, later stages of production. I mean, I've seen the script now and seen kind of the images and the idea of, of the uh, 
uh, of what the aesthetics of that film are going to look like. And so uh, all in various stages, you know, moving forward. That is fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see the man. More to the point, though, uh, how is the novel coming? Yeah, so that I finished uh, my first draft. Um, it's at sitting at 600 pages right now. So it was an epic, epic, okay. uh, you know. Uh, and so the novel is, you know, a post-apocalyptic Huckleberry Finn uh, where a boy is making his way down to New Orleans where a Trumpian leader has kind of throned himself king at that point. And there's a uh, almost Tolkien-style battle of good and evil that will happen in, in New Orleans. And yeah, so I made it all the way through. This is the first novel I've written. I didn't expect to write an, an epic, but sure enough, uh, now I begin the second you know stage of trimming and editing and probably you know pulling back 600 pages to around 400 or 450. When you when you're writing uh, at the sentence level, do you um, end up like? gutting lots of sentences and, and doing re rewriting lots of prose or does stuff uh come out well and you think okay i can keep this i just gotta jettison, jettison this whole sub story yeah all of that i mean it 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 absolutely it's brutal editing uh because part of my what i learned of how to work is that i just let myself make a mess and so i write by hand and so the 600 pages were written all by hand across uh you know, 12 journals or something like that. Wow. Um, and that allows me to really not worry about making a mistake or anything. I just make a huge mess. I write it any part of the story or novel. Beginning doesn't have to be the first page at all. I might start in the middle. I write whatever scenes I want. Um, then I write the interstitial work later. Uh, the boring scenes I don't want to write, I don't write until the end, you know, and things like that. Um, and then I have to start chopping. And, you know, the experience for me is because I open up early on to that flush of inspiration, I have the mistake of thinking that exuberance in prose is brilliance. Like, I'll feel like so good when I'm writing it. And I'll be like, yeah, this is great. I don't need to edit anything. And then the next day I look and I say, oh, my God, this is crap. <laughs> it goes like just pendulum swings the complete other end. And then I start doing the editing work. And sure enough, neither of those tr are true right off the bat. It's not brilliant. It's not crap. It's, it, it is workable prose that's going to need a couple drafts. And then sure enough, I can make it somewhere, bring it somewhere where it becomes magical. Um, that's the tedious work of many, many drafts. With so much work being uh, chosen for adaptation, have you considered or written a, a screenplay yourself? I'm just starting to finally accept the idea in my mind of writing screenplays. Uh, you know, I, I that's kind of good. It. I think I like that. <laughs> I mean, it gives me confidence that a you took your your previous work very seriously, and you did, and it shows. And also that it will be uh, seeing the same seriousness in the screenplay. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I learned how to write fiction. I never took classes in screenwriting. And I do know that it has its own rules and things. So I want to really like educate myself first just to make sure I know what the rules are, even if I want to break them. Um, and then also, I mean, one of the things that I get used, I have to get used to is that script writing uh, does away with a lot of setting, which is such a big piece of my fiction. You know, mm -hmm. there's so much 
focus on dialogue and then just kind of notes about setting versus uh, fiction where I can go on for paragraphs about setting and just have like one little bit of dialogue. So it's almost flipped, uh, which means it's going to bring in new skills. Uh, but I'm very interested. You know, I started thinking, well, what about writers like, you know, uh, Charlie Kaufman or um, writers that I really, you know, script writers and directors that I really love that seem to break the rules? What kind of scripts are those? And, you know, could I play around in that kind of a world? Um, so I'm just starting to think about that. Now, um, you, your uh, novel is in its edit. When will we be able to purchase it and talk about <laughs> yeah, it? Well, so my guess is that it's, you know, now I'm going into the editing stage that usually takes around anywhere from three to six months. Uh, and then we will hopefully take it to market, you know, and uh, at that point, you know, the way the process works is once the book is sold, it then t usually takes another year of edits um, and polishing and all of that before it hits its bookstore. So my guess, my hope is 2023 to 2024, we'll see it. I've been talking with Alexander Weinstein. He's the author of Saying Goodbye to Yang, which was adapted as After Yang by Kogo Nana. That's in his short story collection, Children of the New World. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Thanks so much. It's great to talk with you. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.